Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, as details emerge of the second televised debate on Scottish independence, we'll discuss how the UK media have handled the issue so far and what might be in store for Scottish indies next year. Also on the show, the latest magazine circulation figures are out. We pour over the big winners and losers. Plus, how should the media report sensitive issues such as suicide? How can publishers take advertisers' money and keep editorial control? And what sessions should you go to at the Guardian Edinburgh International TV Festival next week? All of those questions and more answered on today's media podcast, sponsored by Audioboo. Well, joining me in Soho this week are Steve Ackerman, Managing Director of Content Company Something Else, and making his debut on the media podcast, it's the news editor of broadcast magazine, Jake Cantor. Big event for you, Jake, I imagine. You've been building up to this your whole career. Uh, it's been a long time coming, that's all I can say. No, I'm joking. It's uh, it's a, it's an honour to be on. Quite right. And what else have you been up to this week? <laughs> well, I'm just back from holiday, so I've re-entered the media world, and the tumbleweed is almost palpable. I mean, it, it feels like silly season, so much so that The Times ran a front-page story uh, this week uh, about the BBC collecting licence fee revenue, sending out about 100,000 letters a day, and I'm sort of like, well... Uh, the BBC's entitled to go after what it's owed, I think. So it was a bit of an odd one, I thought. Doesn't sound like the kind of thing The Times would do, stoke yeah, up I, any I kind I of anti-BBC feeling. For the Times. Very bizarre. <laughs> Steve, what have you been up to? Hello, Ollie. Hello. So so a few things, really. I mean, I think for us, it's it's quite a sort of conference-type season, so absolutely looking forward to, to Edinburgh Festival, particularly because one of my colleagues, Kirsty, has been on the organising committee, so we've been thinking about some of the hospitality arrangements we might do there. And then the radio festival comes very quickly in October as well. So uh, also looking at the arrangements we're going to do around that. Do you recognise this depiction that Jake paints of uh, the tumbleweed blowing past, though, in August? Everyone decamps, no one's around, things don't get commissioned. All I can say is my bags are packed and I'm flying off on Saturday, so, <laughs> I, I, so I'm sorry about that. Lovely. Where, where to? Where to? It does seem to disappear to its, uh, its holiday villas uh, in August, and in January, they're, you know, they're ski lodges. Carry on, Jake. So they go to their villas, and where are those villas? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, go on, because we're going somewhere with this. Where are those villas? I don't know. Spain, Portugal, anywhere. Tuscany? Are you going to Who's Tuscany? Going to Tuscany? Oh, that'll be me. Sorry. Have you ever managed to get a commission away in an Italian villa? No, but I will take my business cards with me, as ever. Steve Ackerman on the equivalent of the Rothschild yacht, I suppose, but in the, in, in the TV world. Uh, OK, well, uh, let's talk about uh, some of the proper news now, and let's start with the news that the BBC are to broadcast the second live debate between Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond and Better Together campaign chairman Alistair Darling. It's going to be screened live on BBC One Scotland uh, and to the rest of the UK on BBC Two, bizarrely, on the 25th of August. That's the bank holiday Monday. Uh, 
Steve, this makes sense, doesn't it, that it's going to be broadcast around the rest of the UK? Because the first debate was seen by just under two million on STV, but if you wanted to see it in the rest of the UK, it was a bit of difficulty. It did seem a little bit bizarre that the broadcast was limited to that, and you heard all the time on places like Five Live the sort of slightly awkward thing when they were debating, you know, ahead of the debate when they were talking about it, saying, oh, well, there'll be other ways you can watch it elsewhere in the UK sort of thing. Yeah. So If it, you hold a mirror near a window that might be pointing at Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, and you would have thought, especially for a public service broadcaster, this is, this is probably the key political debating point this year. So good to see that happening, though, whether I'll be tuning in from... Tuscany, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, I can't quite believe that STV and ITV weren't able to come to some sort of agreement whereby ITV was able to show uh, the debate. Now, I don't know. I'm not close to this. Maybe ITV chose not to do that, in which case I think it's a massive missed opportunity. Mm. I mean, of course, STV did show it online. Uh, on STV Player, which was accessible here in the UK, uh, but they obviously had these issues with the with the player. And this week, they've rather spinelessly blamed their technology supplier, I think, in a very public apology. And it's all slightly odd, I think. Everyone's trying to cover their backs a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you do wonder what's going on behind the scenes, but it does seem to me that someone underestimated the interest around the rest of England and Wales and Northern Ireland into what is a massive issue, whether you get a vote on it or not. And you, we like the theatre of it, don't we? We want to see how they did. Well, that's exactly it. I think when you're looking at streaming events, obviously you've you've got to allow for enough people to be able to access the feed. And clearly that didn't happen on this occasion, which I find really remarkable from a broadcaster. I mean, if that had happened from maybe someone who runs, you know, I don't know, like British Fashion Week or, or the Brits or people who aren't, you know, broadcasters in their DNA, you'd understand that. But but this was this was a broadcasting company who underestimated it, which does seem extraordinary. And indeed, and part of the network ITV, which obviously was the historic first home of the TV debate between the Prime Ministers. One is it? You'd think they'd want to develop that as well. And Jake, in the latest issue of uh, a magazine, I think it's called Broadcast or something, there's a report on the <laughs> issues facing TV indies in Scotland, if there's going to be a yes vote. I confirm it's called Broadcast, <laughs> thankfully. That's, that's one bit of information I can confirm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we've done uh, quite a, a reasonably extensive piece of work uh, over the past few weeks talking to all the major Scottish production companies. Uh, we've spoken to about 20 of the 30 packed registered indies and other influential figures, just to get a sense of how they see the referendum playing out for their business. A, a lot of them are upbeat about the potential upsides uh, for the yes vote, if the yes vote comes off, not least the potential for additional funding. But what is clear is there is a, a cloud of uncertainty. Many believe there could be delays of between 18 months and two years where decisions get backlogged because uh, there are so many unanswered questions about what it will mean specifically for the BBC. And Steve, have you thought about that as you know, someone who works with a big indie? Uh, what you do in the event of a yes vote? Do you set up a Scottish version of your office? I mean, have you had that discussion? I think we've kind of been here before with regional quotas and that sort of thing. And as you know, many indies either did or looked at setting up, you know, uh, bases in the north or in uh, Wales or, you know, various bits of the of the country. Certainly for us, it's not something that's really on the agenda. But also in terms of the scale of real super indies, I'd be really surprised if um, if that really was something that was seen as a business imperative for most. All right. Well, next up, another magazine which is going digital only. This time it's Company, the younger sibling of Cosmo, launched in 1978, owned by Hearst Magazines UK. Uh, According to Press Gazette, during its last ABCs for the six months to the end of 2013, it had sales of just over 88 
Thousands. Now, 10 years ago, that number was 330,000. Its October edition will be its last. That's released on the 5th of September, if you want to go out and get that historic issue. Uh, Steve, another brand going online only. This one's aimed at 16 to 24-year-old women. So, well, does it stand a chance, do you think? Not really. You know, I think it's uh, sadly unsurprising that this is happening And I think we're obviously seeing this with a number of publications and clearly NME has also had some pretty poor numbers this week, which which maybe we'll come on to chat about in a minute or two. But, you know, the difficulty for print publications when they're competing against against the online world is what's their USP? What do they have that can't be accessed for free online? And it is that old adage, you can't compete against free. For some uh, magazines like Company, I think you really struggle to understand what is it that they're really offering that's unique. And that's really what I think those numbers say to you, because if they're aiming at a 16 to 24 demographic, well, there is plenty of stuff you can get online that really is of the ilk of company and and so what are their chances for success going forward i wouldn't want to bet on on a positive result there but maybe it is to do with the age group they're targeting as well because at the other end of the women's market good housekeeping is now the number one women's lifestyle title performing slightly better than glamour in both print and digital sales for the first time so maybe you're better off targeting older readers if you want to have a print business still running as well yeah but i but i think what many publishers have failed to identify is how they adapt for the digital age and i think you have to look at publications like The Economist who have done it brilliantly in terms of not just having their their written word version but coming up with video, audio other things that play off their brand and retain the loyalty of what was a reader and I think actually I mean someone like The Economist is an interesting example because if you read about their strategy what they talk about is the fact that they identified people were giving up subscriptions because they didn't have time anymore to read the magazine and yet they valued it and so what did The Economist do they started creating all sorts of different versions of the magazine you know allowing people to hear it to to watch it you know to interact with it in in different ways to retain that loyalty and I think that's really a similar challenge that someone like Company has you know you you no longer can just see yourself as transferring the written word to the screen. You've got to identify all the different ways in which you can reach that same audience and obviously therefore deliver numbers for the advertiser. And Jake, how do those kind of conversations go inside broadcast? Because you've got a podcast now which you host, I, so I hear. Uh, and also you, you, know, you have video content as well and your website. I mean, yeah. how do you discuss moving forward with that? Still seen very much as a print title, number one, but obviously people get their news from you online, I guess. Well, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, it's a... This is something we discuss every single day. And with each story we write, we try to figure out the the best way to present that information, be it online or in the magazine, which we produce every week. I don't think we we always get it right, but sometimes we do. And, uh, and that sort of creative tension is part of our everyday editorial uh, conversation. And, I mean, as someone who loves print journalism, it's always sad when you see a magazine close and it, I, I mean I had a little poke around the the, the company website today and uh, you know although I'm not the target audience it didn't feel particularly different or unique mm. uh, in what it was doing it was very BuzzFeed like there was a lot of listicles which we we might talk about BuzzFeed later I'm not sure it's such a crowded market space as well I mean where do 16 to 24 year old girls get, go to get their news I'd wager a large portion of them are on the mail website I mean, Steve mentioned The Economist. Have you got a brand that you'd like to pick out that you think has actually made the transition very well as well? From And you're not allowed to mention broadcast. Uh, <laughs> from the traditional print version to even perhaps a paywalled model like yourself or a free model online. Who else is doing it well, do you think? 
I don't think we can sit here at the moment and say that anyone has got it right specifically. Certainly, I, I would struggle to name someone. And I think everyone is sort of feeling their way around this and trying to find a sustainable model that will work online. I, I don't think we've reached that point yet. I think that will become clear in two or three years' time. But not all bad news for these ABC circulation figures, as I was saying. Good housekeeping and glamour, actually, although they're fighting for the top spot, both getting around 400,000 combined sales per month in print and digital. I mean, print isn't dead, is it? No, no, no way is it dead. I mean, it's, it's still healthy. And, uh, I mean, there's new magazines launching all the time. I, I mean, only recently, uh, Mike Ashley, who owns Sports Direct and is uh, the owner of Newcastle, launched a, a, a magazine called Sports Forever, and I think it's doing reasonably well. So, yeah, there's still an appetite for for print, definitely. But, Steve, you mentioned NME. Uh, I think they got less than 15,000 sales in print. I know their website's doing well, but if you were running that, it's time to put the magazine out of its misery, isn't it? Well, it's the same thing, unfortunately, which is that if you're a music obsessive, which is the sort of person who's going to buy NME, there are a whole stack of websites you can go to, not only to read about stuff, but to take part in the conversation you know if you're if you're passionate about something you don't just want to be fed information uh you know the new interactor age gives you the chance to be right at the heart of the conversation with with the people who maybe are more knowledgeable or or who are who are providing opinion or tastemaker guidance to you so again it's no real surprise i mean i think it's not necessarily about is print dead it's just that old adage that you know the content has to be strong enough and i think some of the examples you've cited who are doing well have particular niches and when we think about broadcast obviously you you know you hold a particular niche and therefore the ability to have a paywall same obviously for for the financial times mm. you know you know you've got to have an, a niche or a reason for the audience to really want what it is you're providing and i think when we look at some of the examples that you've mentioned today who are struggling they don't have that case. Well, I like to think we are the tastemakers when it comes to media opinion, and we'll have more of that conversation in just a sec. This episode of the Media Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. And what is Squarespace? Why, it's the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. Media Podcast listeners can get a free trial and 10% off by entering the made-up word MEDIAPOD at the checkout. But how does it work, I hear you ask? Well, you just drag and drop your pictures, your texts, your audio visuals, all into your browser window, choosing a template that suits your project, and, well, that's it. You're ready to launch in just a few minutes. Start a trial with no credit card required, and begin building a website with Squarespace today. And don't forget, you can get 10% off when you use the offer code MEDIAPOD, only at Squarespace. Let's tackle some other stories now. And of course, there have been many reports, articles and opinion this week about the death of comedian and actor Robin Williams. Uh, A few of them touching on the media's response to the coverage. Some, like the academic Douglas Chalmers writing for The Drum, criticised papers including The Sun, The Mirror and The Mail for their lurid detail, sometimes in bullet point headlines. He says they run the risk of bringing about copycat actions by individuals who perhaps may feel seriously depressed or have mental health issues. Uh, Jake, there are clear guidelines for reporting suicide. Do you think some of our publications that he mentions there actually cross that line? Well, I mean, there are really clear guidelines for television. Ofcom uh, says pretty much don't do it, don't, uh, or at least don't detail the method of suicide. Obviously, with 
the printed press is a bit more relaxed. Although the Samaritans do have some guidance, which they've actually uh, sort of republished this week, and it was doing the rounds on Twitter. I mean, the guidance is really clear. I mean, it, it says things like, be mindful that celebrity suicides have a higher risk of encouraging copycat behaviour, particularly if the media coverage is extensive and sensationalist. Uh, avoid explicit details of the suicide method. Do not portray a suicide as quick, effective, painless or easy. And I was looking at the Sun front page uh, the day after Robin Williams's death, and I think the sun pretty much broke all of those guidelines. And the criticism, I guess, is, you know, this wasn't a quick reaction because we got the news that he was dead at midnight. So actually all of the papers the following morning didn't have the story at all. They had 24 hours almost to get their act together. It's not as if you could say, oh, it was the junior foot soldiers, you know, who just rushed out a front page. This was a considered front page from all of the tabloids. Steve, do you think they went too far? Or do you think actually it is justified to put this on the front page and to speculate about the motives behind his suicide because it's such a huge story. I mean, effectively, that's what their defence is. Well, it's clearly justified to put it on the front page because it was, it was a massive story. But, but why, why, why are we surprised that the titles you mentioned have behaved the yeah. way they have? Leveson is dead. So why are we surprised? It's not surprising. And is the question, is it going to change? The answer is probably no. And the answer to that, and the reason for that, sorry, is it sells newspapers. Mm. And as long as it continues to sell newspapers, proprietors are not going to be too bothered about breaking some guidelines that the Samaritans have set out. This is in the same week that Frank Maloney and his story Mm. has revealed that actually the reason that the story was in the Sunday Mirror was because two other titles had doorstepped not only him, but his family. Mm. It's kind of the same theme, which is the press are reverting, or some of the press are reverting back to type, having for a year or two made sure they were really behaving themselves whilst Leveson was taking place and whilst we didn't. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Know what was going to come out of that. Now that they know they've pretty much got their own way, we're reverting back to type. I understand the arguments are very passionate on the side of those of 
who work in mental health because they'll say to media organisations, look, you actually have blood on your hands if you do this. We have evidence that people copycat what they see and read. But I also see that if the regulations were drawn up a while ago and we are now living in an age where people have spent the whole day on Twitter and Facebook talking about this openly, it would be a bit bizarre for the papers not to reflect some of that conversation, wouldn't it? Look, there's a there's a responsibility, isn't there, that if you're any form of media organisation or outlet, you do have a responsibility... However, I think we all seem to be in agreement. Obviously, the the, the papers w- w- have every right to publish about the story and and actually probably go into detail about the story. Uh, it's just the way that that's managed that that is probably the talking point here. Mm. I, I mean, one thing that I am impressed by that they all did seem to do is they all did publish numbers for Mind and the Samaritans next to the articles, and that's something that they seem to pay attention to. But that seemed to then underline the fact they'd chosen to disregard some of the other rules regarding the detail of, and methodology and so on. OK, well, another tricky tightrope has also been walked by The Guardian this week over its decision to accept an advert critical of Hamas in Gaza in Monday's print edition. Uh, according to The Guardian, Guardian's John Plunkett, never heard of him, uh, the Times had refused the same advert in the previous week as it was too strong and would cause concern amongst its readers. Steve, the Guardian's not the first paper to take ad money from sources that might confuse their editorial position. Uh, The Telegraph have, for example, had a regular supplement paid for by the Russian government. Um, So, you know, that may make the journalists at these papers feel pretty uncomfortable, but this doesn't seem to be new ground being broached here, so why the fuss? Well, this, I mean, this is a really difficult issue, isn't it? And I think when you get into politics, this is probably one of the most difficult issues because everybody has an opinion and it's a very passionate subject and it's it's kind of tied into the same to a similar theme i suppose a couple of years ago when the previous war uh, took place between the israelis and hamas when the bbc didn't run the dec uh, appeal C- kind of a similar debate about you know is it getting too political should you sh- should you highlight this ultimately the guardian are obviously entitled to run an advert it doesn't actually uh, say anything about their editorial line and if you read the guardian you'll you'll know that because um they've certainly put across both sides and um I suppose you always know when you're getting an issue right because many in the Jewish community would say they're too biased towards the Palestinians and many in the Palestinian community would say oh oh they're too gentle on on uh, Israel so so it's a difficult issue I personally I don't see the problem you know I think I think there's an advertiser who's advertising about something that's that's quite valid I think it's okay. I mean, in the same light, they would accept an advert, I think, from the other side, so... Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because if you were picking media brands that would accept a kind of pro-Israel advert rather than perhaps a pro-Palestinian advert, I suppose, you know, stereotypically, you'd think it would be the Times that would be more easier going about the pro-Israeli advert than The Guardian. But the Times rejected it. Is but The right? Times rejected it, yeah. So, I mean, it is a very difficult tightrope for all these companies to walk. I'd like to sit on the fence a little bit on this one. I mean, the question I would ask The Guardian is, was the money they made from running that advert worth the risk of... Uh, creating questions about their editorial integrity? I guess the answer to that is it depends on whether it's clearly delineated as an advert, isn't it? Which is what Steve was saying. Which, you you know, obviously it would have been. I mean, I I suppose the counterpoint is, especially uh, looking at The Guardian's editorial stance, if they'd have turned that advert away, imagine the news story. Mm. It's almost impossible, isn't it, to really come up with a with the right answer, I think. I, I don't envy the people at The Guardian who had to try and make this decision. I don't envy any editor who has to make decisions about covering this this conflict. Mm. Um, you look at the way the broadcasters cover it. I mean, whenever I see coverage on, on television, I think it's very fair and balanced. But there have been protests outside the BBC. 
and uh, it, it's such a thorny issue to get right. The general rule of thumb, whenever you hear reporters talking about this this sort of thing, but that when they say you've you've pissed off both sides, yeah. you've usually got the story right. Certainly I know <laughs> in my LBC inbox, if I have equal 50% either side calling me either a member of the Zionist elite or a Jew hater, then I've got it about right. And, and you know, I mean, that's really the point I think I'm trying to make, that I, that I think as long as The Guardian has had an even-handed approach in that they would accept a similar advert from the Palestinian side promoting that debate, then I think you can say, OK, this is right. If it's an uneven-handed approach, then that's a different thing. But I don't think that's probably the case with The Guardian. And what about when advertising isn't obviously advertising, though, because we are moving to this world now of native advertising? Uh, the comedian John Oliver, him again, used his HBO show on Sunday to talk about this, uh, which has itself gone viral. He was protesting about this new way that advertisers pay for editorial content. Um, Jake, how do you react to what he was saying? <laughs> I did watch the video, and uh, he did make clear at the start that HBO is in quite a privileged position because uh, it makes all its money through subscription. But um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I think about this issue because, in my mind, it's been around for a long time. I mean, broadcasters do uh, advertise funding programming. We at Broadcast run advertorials in our magazine. Uh, you know, that you could argue there are grey areas there. So I think it's, an, it's just the next evolution of that, to be honest, that the, the, the likes of BuzzFeed are coming in and, and doing it in their way. And that's one of the things that makes those companies successful, isn't it? The fact that they can in, embed advertising that doesn't feel like advertising. That's part of the new frontier, and yet it's also concerning when you look at a model like The Guardian or The Times. Well, this, well, this is a subject that winds me up, and especially this phrase, native advertising, because as a company who work a lot with brands, creating content with brands, and this is a space that is gr- very fast-growing, mm. there is actually a big difference between a piece of branded content on TV, which which ostensibly is editorially led. So if you think of like like about a Red Bull show featuring, you know, one of their flying events, that's an editorial program, mm. but it obviously has a relationship with Red Bull. It might have a relationship to their brand values or it might display something about the brand they want to convey, but in effect it's an editorial uh, you know, has editorial worth to it. When we talk about native advertising, you're right, Jake. In effect, it's been around for ages, and it's what we used to call advertorials. And that's very different, because that doesn't necessarily have editorial worth. That's something that, from an editorial standpoint, is being uh, really uh, led by the needs of the brand rather than the needs of the audience. And I think there's a, there's, there's a, there's a big point of difference there. And this is where the content debate for, for brands is sort of heating up, because on the one hand, you've got some fantastic content on YouTube and audio content and written content that has strong editorial worth. But then on the other side, you have what's now been called native advertising, which has always been called advertorial, and that's not the same thing. I think the points Oliver makes is absolutely right, actually, in terms of it, it you know, the point about native advertising is it attempts to, to very intentionally blur the lines mm. so that the reader thinks they are getting something of editorial worth. It's an interesting debate. I mean, I went on BuzzFeed today and there was a, a piece... Uh, sponsored by NatWest, and I thought, actually, I can quite clearly see the NatWest logo there. And I'm sure BuzzFeed would argue that if that piece of content generates uh, a good number of clicks and is shared a lot, then they've given their audience a, a good piece of content and made money out of it. I mean, what's astonishing is that people will actually click and read and enjoy an article that's called, you know, 12 Ways the New NatWest Current Account is Awesome. But actually, if you lay it out in a way that's entertaining, they will. Uh, and, yeah, maybe the audience is complicit in that. But that goes back to Steve's point. Uh, if if it's editorially led yeah. and engaging and interesting, then does it matter? Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it, I mean, in a way, it's what we, de- we were debating before about Company Magazine. If if the content is 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 right, the audience the audience ultimately 
will make the decision about how they feel about content. And and, and this may be the difficult thing with native advertising that I think what we're seeing with a lot of na- native advertising is it's not actually something the audience desires or that they're showing an appetite for. Yeah. But the audience will ultimately decide. That's the danger, isn't it? It's when advertisers write or produce the content themselves rather than it being an editorial led piece of work i think i think that's where the, the, that's when you run into trouble well next week is of course the not at all advertorially titled guardian edinburgh international television festival uh, we at the media podcast will be there to cover the event uh, so we thought we'd end this week with our pick of the sessions to attend steve you've got the program in front of you but you're not going uh, what could possibly lure you out of your tuscan villa you know obviously i'm, I'm slightly biased in terms of my own interest but i think the things that would you know, the things I would be more interested in are some of the digital sessions, because I think TV still has a big challenge in terms of how it integrates lots of the potential that digital and gaming and interactivity offers. Mm. So I think those sessions would be would be very interesting, like how, how do you do digital? Uh, I noticed as well that there are uh, some sessions related around really what we've just been debating. So, you know, the rise of the admin and, and you know, how, you know, where where do brands fit into this into this spectrum and this and this debate and then i think the other things that will interest me are some of the sessions around talent because year by year the power of talent is growing and again i you know i think for all broadcasters that is that is becoming a very difficult issue over where the power actually lies is it with the broadcaster or with the talent uh, well, I'll definitely be attending the not at all backslapping session. Is TV the new film? Uh, <laughs> I think the answer to that probably is yes. So maybe the industry is entitled uh, to do a bit of backslapping. Jake, you're going to be there as well, covering the event for broadcast. Uh, top picks from you? Uh, well, I mean, clearly the McTaggart is is the big one. It tends to set the tone for the whole festival. Uh, and this year, it's Channel Four Chief Executive David Abraham. Uh, I mean, we've had a couple of, I would argue. From my point of view, uh, from a businessy point of view, that we've had a couple of fallow years. Um, uh, you know, Kevin Spacey was great um, it, creatively, and you know, gave uh, delivered a fantastic speech. Is there a Liz butt Murdoch. coming? Is there a butt coming? <laughs> Kevin, but what? Yeah, Liz Kevin Murdoch. Spacey was great. Liz What's Murdoch the butt? Was 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 good. Didn't say much. He's not going to tell us what the, the butt was on Kevin here's Spacey. Here's the butt. Here's the butt. Oh, okay. I think uh, I think um, David Abraham will will really get into some meaty issues for for the industry. Uh, one of which being the fact that Channel 4 is going to get a bit tougher with uh, some of its suppliers. Suppliers that uh, particularly are you know, large production companies owned by f- foreign giants, effectively, and uh, the fact that Channel 4 doesn't, uh, it doesn't think that um, uh, the money that it, it offers for commissions should be going outside of the UK creative economy. Uh, and aside from that, I am an unashamed unrepentant Game of Thrones geek and uh, there will be a a big Game of Thrones session uh, where we've been promised some special guests presumably some of the actors uh, from the show. And and all the commissioners will fight to the death. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Uh, I think what we learnt there Kevin Spacey if you are listening is that Jake from Broadcast thinks you're not meaty. Uh, Right well that's all we've got time for. Oh oh, hold on it's not it's time for the media quiz. Thank God. Uh, Three questions one cream this time it's stat attack i'm going to give you a statistic from the week's media news you tell me what story it relates to uh, stat number one one in ten households use which digital media service steve yes netflix correct a surprise not really three million households use netflix in the past year and meaning that that's more than one in ten now using it according to barb 
Uh, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they oh, won't release their... Barb, Barb, like... <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're a good source of information, I would say. You're like, who is this Barb? I, I mean, the reason... I, you know, I didn't want to sound flippant. The reason, the reason I sort of flippantly said not really is because when you think about the amount of streaming services and that there is no doubt that the breakthrough has now been made in the transfer from DVD consumption to streaming consumption, is it a surprise that one in ten are are taking a service from one of the biggest providers? No. And it's more than that, isn't it? It's that they're the brand. It's almost yeah. like they're the hoover, you know. People say Netflix, I think, even if they're watching actually yeah. Now TV or, or you know, Amazon Prime, although no one watches Amazon Prime, do they? Telly the is absolutely fascinated by Netflix and uh, constantly looking over its shoulder at what, what, what Netflix is doing. And I, only, I think it's only going to get bigger as well. And they're starting to commission content here in the UK. They've got a massive order in with a company called Left Bank Pictures where they're going to do this huge biopic uh, on the Queen. Well, all issues that I think Kevin Spacey covered is in his uh, McTaggart uh, lecture last year, which you've labelled light. <laughs> uh, stat number two, uh, a 15% fall in what over 12 months? Oh, this is the number of radios in people's households. Correct, yeah. Radio Today reporting sales... I'm proud of- I beat you on that one, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> sales of both analogue and DAB sets have fallen this year. Now, Steve, this is the first time DAB has followed the analogue trend. Is that a problem or is it actually about people buying mobiles and tablets and they can listen to radio there? I think it depends on the wider consumption patterns uh, because the amount of of the population who's listening has not massively changed over over the past few years though I know that hours are are down so it's really about what are you know what other devices are people listening on if they are if they're not then clearly it's clearly this is an issue Okay, this is a very exciting moment because we've only got a third question and we're at, we're we're at level heads at the moment so here goes stat number 3 it's worth three times more than the Washington Jake. Post. Yes, Jake. Buzzfeed. Yes, well done. You've been waiting for that. <laughs> yeah. He was very excited the there. <laughs> Listeners should know he quivered with excitement as he uh, answered that. Correct. Uh, Buzzfeed has received $50 million in new funding, which values the business at $850 million, much more than Jeff Bezos paid for the Washington Post last year. Is it worth it, do you think? Um, I mean, it's certainly shirked off its sort of cats on skateboards image. I don't know. I, I'm not entirely convinced by BuzzFeed. I mean, I, I like it. I mean, it's a, in my mind, it's a bit like going to the zoo, I think, ironically, <laughs> given the cats on skateboards thing. Uh, you go there, you see lots of exotic things. It, it, it really holds your attention. But when you leave, it's almost completely com- forgettable. And every visit seems to sort of meld into one memory. That's my that's my view of BuzzFeed, <laughs> for what it's worth. I think you write them off at your peril because they've got deep pockets. Uh, I certainly know of one sort of very respectable journalist who was lured there by a very good pay packet and options. I think I'm right in saying they've now got 15 foreign correspondents, mm. uh, I think based out of the UK, maybe working working for them. And it seems to me the strategy is they've started from a place where they just wanted to get numbers in and now they will start to morph into something of a more sophisticated service. And look, there's no doubt, we all know the sort of newspaper world or the news reporting world is in revolution and turmoil. Maybe this is the this is the story that's going to emerge through it. This is this is the brand that's going to emerge. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably doing it a disservice, I have to admit. I mean, they're clearly stepping up their serious journalism efforts. They've also, I mean, they've got this guy called Z Frank, who's their head of video, and they've just appointed, I think, uh, a guy called Michael Schamberg 
to be a consultant. Big web uh, names, yeah. He, so he produced uh, Pulp Fiction, and he's going to be helping with their video content. So that'll be really interesting to see how that develops, and I'm sure broadcasters in the UK will be keeping a close eye on what they do. Maybe some lessons for BBC Three if it moves online next year. Mm, well, thank you for that final thought, and Steve, I look forward to reading your listicle, 10 Reasons Why You Underestimate BuzzFeed at Your Peril. Uh, that is it for this episode. My thanks to Steve and to Jake. We're going to be back even sooner than usual with our Edinburgh TV Festival special. And remember, you can get the podcast as soon as it's ready by subscribing via our website, themediapodcast.com. Uh, this week's episode is dedicated to Gemma Harris from Backer Ollie. Happy first anniversary, Gemma. Ollie writes to say that this podcast has replaced the traditional one-year paper. Uh, and to Estelle Farrell Roch, uh, a girl from Barcelona who is studying journalism at the University of Sheffield. Thanks very much, Estelle. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill. And uh, by the way... The Media Podcast is a PPM production and not affiliated to The Guardian in any way. We'll see you in Edinburgh. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.